You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on the road to now. Yeah, I believe there's a paucity of ideological differences in America. And you, you, you essentially kind of have the... You really go back to that Hamilton-Jefferson split. You know, you have either you want to centralize more or you want to split it up more. You want to give the people more of a voice or you want to put some restraints on it. So the Democrats now have this great candidate in Grover Cleveland. The Republicans nominate nominate the antithesis of this is James G. Blaine, (laughs) who's just corruption personified. And there's just documents of him sending letters to people like, please do this favor for me. Oh, and burn this letter. (laughs) 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 So it's what you do when you don't have a private server. (laughs) Exactly. uh, The Constitution. A constitutional convention that called for the executive to be someone with energy and dispatch. You know, didn't want necessarily an old man. That was the Senate from the Latin Senex, old men. That's what the Senate is for. The presidency is supposed to be vigorous energy. Um, there's other things that have changed about the presidency. We can certainly talk more about that. But but it was supposed to be a person that was vigorous. And it is interesting in this election, by the it way, is, that yes. whether it was Hillary, Trump, or even Bernie, you were going to get an older president. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz was the last remaining cause of, of the youth, uh, the youthful presidency. So we're going to get an older president. But do they have Different. the stamina? Do they have the oh. stamina? <laughs> I'm Bob Crawford. And I'm Ben Sawyer. And this is The Road to Now. Well, this week we had the privilege of speaking with Bruce Carlson, who hosts and has created a podcast called my history can beat up your politics. When I <laughs> was first uh, on on iTunes so long ago, looking at different po- history podcasts, I came across the, that title, and I was like, "What is this? This sounds so exciting." Mm-hmm. I listened to it, and I faintly recognized this voice, this melodious baritone <laughs> voice, uh, <laughs> and I realized that I went to college uh, with this guy. Uh, we went to the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey, which was um, known in the 70s when it was established in like 1969, 1970 as Stockton State College. Now, since I left in the in 1995, it has become known as Stockton University by many. But Bruce and mm-hmm. I uh, traveled in in uh, similar circles. We we our paths crossed a few a few times, but he has an incredibly well-researched and well-written history podcast that um, really articulates the intersection of politics and history. Absolutely. And I love this. I mean, I've listened to so many of these episodes. I actually used to listen to this podcast before we started doing the podcast. So I I listened to it before. And the ones he's been doing in the lead up to the election, I mean, as a historian, as as a teacher, I consider myself to be a storyteller. And I try to find the stories that, 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 that relate the past to the present, but also cut into like humanizing the, the past and helping people realize that like, yeah, this was a long time ago, but these are still people. And 
for goodness sakes, Bruce, he, he, he finds these stories that I'm like, I spent my life studying history. And he finds these stories that just, ah, oh, they're great. And his voice is, is wonderful. And what a great road to now, like what a great thing for the theme, which is like sometimes we start places and the road diverges and then it intersects. And we had this conversation and uh, so you guys are back together. I was literally in transit. Uh, I recorded this episode sitting in a dark hallway in the Nashville airport and uh, and still was loving it the whole time. <laughs> I was loving it. At one point, it was like a really narrow hall. At one point, some guy came and sat right behind me and I was like, what? We were the only two people in this dark corridor. It's <laughs> like, is this the road to now episode where the road ends in a dead end? As the guy who edited the episode, it was challenging to cut around the announcements the uh flight 205 heading to poughkeepsie's boarding in 15 minutes like it it was uh it was a challenge so folks when you hear that stuff in the background on ben's track really ben went the extra mile to make this podcast happen that's right i got up at like uh, four o'clock in the morning in dc after our georgetown interview Flew in, connecting flights, landed at 9.55, and was recording this episode at 10.05 a.m. That's how much I love this podcast and how much I was unwilling to bend on the, on the part of being part of this conversation, which could really only happen at yeah, that time. Yeah, but Ben not only went the extra mile, he got some sky miles, which was great. <laughs> I did get some sky miles. I'm racking them up. <laughs> so, Bruce, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to speak for Bruce and just say he's going to be a, a frequent... Uh, guest on this show as the months and years go on because um, what he does is really special and it's it he puts a lot of time and effort into it and it's again it's very well researched and very he pulls you in I encourage all of our listeners to become his listeners yeah if you like this podcast I think there's a large portion of you probably almost all of you probably will enjoy the podcast my history can beat up your politics here's Bruce Carlson Welcome to The Road to Now. And today, we are honored to have Bruce Carlson, the creator and host of the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, now in its 10th year. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be on. Hey, could you just, for our listeners, introduce yourself? Sure. I do a podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I started kind of when podcasting started. In 2006, the program takes history and all the knowledge that's in those historical books and looks at current politics, applying context of, of history. It's just something that I've always felt was missing from most of the political debates when I started. I've been doing it for 10 years now, have a good amount of uh, fans out there, and, uh, and it's uh, been a good time. So, Bruce, how has podcasting changed in the past 10 years? A lot more audience, a lot more interest, a lot more programming, um, a lot more people involved in doing podcasts. But the, the biggest change in podcasting, if someone ever writes the history of podcasting, and you know, my joke is that I, I do a program about history, and I think after 10 years of doing it, I've kind of become history, but... If uh, someone writes a history of podcasting, the moment of seminal change in it is going to be when you started to have the common use of smartphones and iPads, and I noticed the bump, because it was getting a little dicey there doing a podcast when it was just iPods. Right. 
and now you see that the audience is way up and and of course there's also more more programming and more professional entities are in the game and public broadcasting and things like that but we newspapers magazines we have to make sure that the independent podcaster still has a has a voice and a place you, you know i'm looking at your 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 last four or five episodes and i, I can't implore enough upon our listeners to check out my history can beat up your politics you will absolutely love love this show I mean, it's great, and, and, and you've got the, your cadence is wonderful, and, and the stories you tell. I mean, I'm a historian, you know, I teach this stuff, and then you, you hit on these stories that, that kind of that bring to life these, these moments. And, I, you know, I was listening to your podcast a couple years ago, actually, you know, uh, and, I, yeah, so I'm, I agree totally. Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, history is about stories, and it should be a little entertaining. It's not the only reason we'll go to history, <laughs> but I think the first reason is, is because it's entertaining. And then you figure out how we can apply this and, and learn from history. But in the beginning, it's, it's stories. It is. So speaking of stories, uh, your, your most recent episodes have to deal kind of thematically with um, uh, controversial elections. And, uh, for example, Walter Jenkins and the 1964 election is your most recent episode. Uh, it premiered on October 27th, 2016. And it's about a late-breaking scandal that potentially threatened to change the course of the 1964 election. Can you tell us a little bit about late-breaking scandals that may change <laughs> the course of election? As this is Saturday morning, the day after the Clinton email scandal part five erupted. Right. Well, you've really had in this election now two October surprises, right? Because uh, or September surprise because you had the Access Hollywood tape, and now followed by a day where you have the 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 Clinton email uh, continuing a controversy continuing with the FBI director saying that they're going to look into some of the emails coming from Anthony Weiner and Huma Abdeen's account, and. The interesting thing, tying in a bit to the Walter Jenkins in 1964, is that 1964 was really intended to be a, for all intents and purposes, going to be a blowout election. And Lyndon Johnson, uh, you can't get a, a, a combination like he got in that year. First of all, you know, he was the incumbent. The economy was not bad or anything like that. The things were generally good. There was general generally peace in the world, although always tension with the U.S. and the Soviet Union. You had Kennedy had died the year before, and there was enormous sympathy, which you cannot help, but some of that had to extend to the to the Democratic ticket, because that's where President Kennedy had run on four years before. Then you have the opponent that the Republicans choose as a kind of a very uh, extreme opponent who literally defends extremism, and he, and 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 he's well behind in the polls. And by the time you get to 1964 in October, Barry Goldwater was probably as low as 30%. So now, in the middle of all this, there's a scandal where a key aide, this is the one of LBJ's closest aide, is found in the restroom at a YMCA with another man. Um, and in 1964, this is very different times. This is not the kind of thing that is that goes over well, you know, in 1964. I mean, it, 
and it breaks. And they try to contain the story, but it breaks. And it does get released on the on the United Press wire. And, you know, they, they seclude Walter Jenkins to a hospital. They say it was nervous exhaustion, he worked too hard, that kind of thing. That's the story. I think the American people generally knew what had happened. You know, the newspapers say he was booked in a morals charge. This could have sunk, you know, the presidency. But I think it's a good example of October surprises and how in an election sometimes these surprises really don't amount to much because if that didn't in 1964 you almost could say I don't know what would right closest aide of the president revealed to be gay and then also uh, also found with another man in the stall in a public uh, space so there's a morals charge he had also been arrested in 1959 so now you have the charge that there could have been if someone knows about this maybe he could be blackmailed and trading secrets who knows so there's two concerns. One is the moral concern and one is the security concern. But I, I do look at 1964 and Walter Jenkins. The story was very public. Um, wasn't, I mean, they did their attempt to, to hide it, but it wasn't, uh, they weren't successful. And if that didn't change an election, I don't know what would, you know. Yeah, you've, and, and yeah. I, see, I see great parallels to uh, our, the current election cycle. With what's going on with Hillary Clinton, where some would say there's a this is a moral charge against her and a security charge, it's the same thing. Sure, and you know America right now, I think it's 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 a it's so divided in terms of how people interpret events, and everyone has their own kind of media. So depending on what you're reading, you know you have a different take on the scandal, right? It's either uh, oh my god, this is the biggest threat to the national security ever, or Oh, they keep persecuting this Joan of Arc-like figure, our hero, all the time. And, and it just depends on what... Uh, we've never been so fractal in American uh, politics. Maybe we have, actually. I shouldn't say never. But we're definitely coming back to a period where the media is... It depends on what you know media you're reading. But certainly, it was a late-breaking event. Uh, shocking. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it wouldn't surprise me if there are more... Uh, events like this that go on um uh, certainly on 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 the other side on trump's side there there was the access hollywood tape and i don't think in an american election you've ever had a kind of visceral hearing of the candidate saying things like that ever <laughs> uh for one of the two major party candidates so you've had these two surprises that have just kind of come out um during the election and you know, it's an interesting thing in American election because what does modulate these shocking events is that, I believe, is that in the end of the day, there's two choices. I mean, I know there's third-party candidates, but there's really two choices. And people are going to go and vote Democrat or vote, vote Republican in the largest numbers. A few will vote for Gary Johnson or others. And I think that just tends to modulate events. Like, the, these events can only be so shocking when there's a choice between one-way to go in the White House and the other. You know, Bruce, I don't want to put you on the spot, but we just had a Twitter question within the past hour that I think that you may be the per perfect person to answer. It's from a listener. It's Dale Martin 70. I'd like to know more about when and how the two major parties became the only viable options in our political process. I'd go to 1860. That's where most historians would put it. And that's when uh, Lincoln triumphed. Uh, some say he was the only third-party candidate in history because he was on the Republican ticket. I, I consider that the Republican Party had been established as the second choice at that point, having run in 
1856 and competed in the 1854 midterms. So uh, I think at that point it becomes where you you have um, two parties. You could argue that at the turn of the century the socialists um, presented a strong challenge. Uh, maybe the the most successful third party with mayors and and other elected officials and and a large amount of votes. You know, getting a million votes in some elections. So, uh, but other than that. There's only, I believe, there's a paucity of ideological differences in America, and you, you, you essentially kind of have the, the. you really go back to that Hamilton-Jefferson split. You know, you have either you want to centralize more or you want to split it up more. You want to give the people a, a more of a voice or you want to put some restraints on it. And there's mixes of that um, during history, but you... you you and and no parties are pure throughout history. At, at many times in the 19th century, the Democratic Party is extremely conservative, and the Republican Party, while not liberal, it's very pro-business. Is liberal on on certainly on certain civil rights issues, whereas the Democratic Party alternates. It, in in some instances, I mean, in 1904, the Democratic Party runs Alton Parker for president. They try to out-conservative Theodore Roosevelt. They try to be more conservative than the Republicans. And they've done that. But then the election before, they had run William Jennings Bryan. And so he was uh, trying to stir up uh, the people and to represent small farmers, workers, and uh, mostly on the issue of the tariff and on silver money. But uh, they, they've, these, these choices, these parties have varied. The Electoral College, the way that Congress is set up, even even a thing that people don't think about it much, the 12th Amendment. Ostensibly, the 12th Amendment is created to regulate elections and to make it so that you wouldn't have another situation where a vice president and a president are elected from different factions and don't agree with each other. But by codifying that, you know, the 12th Amendment sounds really good and, and it... And, and harmless, but it could have enhanced the position that's, of parties. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to look at it. I think it's like it's also worth pointing out that like every so often there's this moment where a party tries to split to bring out you know a, a different you know either independent or these movements is like with the Democrats splitting in 1860, the the Bull Moose Party uh, in in 1912, and even Ross Perot in you know in 1992. I think like the problem is if you're looking at a base level and you look back in American history. And you say, well, what have we learned whenever we try to run a, a split party? It's that we just consolidate power for the other side. And I think that's also got to be a problem if you're looking at it from a modern perspective as well. Absolutely, yeah. No one, no one wants that wasted vote. Uh, 1912, it was so obvious from the beginning of the election, before they had even selected Woodrow Wilson as a Democratic candidate, the Democrats went to their convention in Baltimore knowing that they were going to triumph. They just had to pick a president. It got a little contentious for that reason, of course, but um, they knew that splitting between Taft and Roosevelt would would absolutely give the election to the to the Democrats, and that's been the lesson in history. By the way, events in the country were were pretty good. The economy was fairly good; that we weren't at war, although war was coming in Europe at that time. But it was it was earlier. 1912 was a pretty good election. Otherwise, it got messed up for the Republicans because of their own internal politics. 
And so one of the cardinal rules, and you see it in 1976 with Reagan and Ford, you see it with Kennedy and Carter in the next uh, election, is, you know, don't have a fight in your own party if you want to win. Sometimes it's unavoidable. You see in this election with Trump and the other GOP candidates, there's no referee, there's no golden empire that can come and, and adjudicate these differences. Trump has his supporters. Rubio and Bush and them had their supporters, and Trump pri- triumphed. Let's talk about the 1884 election, Blaine v. Cleveland. What can we learn yeah. today? How is that election <laughs> related to our current 2016 election? I think in terms of the level of, of nastiness in the campaign and where I see that as a turning point in an American election, there had been campaigns that were nasty before. I mean, gosh, you know. 1828 with Jackson, and they, they Ooh, sent yeah. around the Goffin Bill about how Jackson executed six people. Well, this is because they were members of the militia, and they had been, uh, you know, they, 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 were, they, were, they were killed as part of a punishment, but they turned that into murder. And then when he killed someone in a duel, that was turned into a murder charge. So that was just one of many attacks on Jackson and back and forth. And uh, so you had nasty campaigns, but it wasn't like Jackson was sitting on the stump and either answering the charges or making any charges or anything like that. So in 1884, what you had is a scandal that develops because the Democrats nominate this golden guy, Grover Cleveland. And in a time of great corruption, and corruption being a major issue, like people just got elected. We know the phrase, to the victors go the spoils. People were just contesting these elections during the 19th century after the Civil War for the graft for the spoils, for the positions, for the who would get to be assistant postmaster in this town or that. And the the burden on these presents when they take office were, were just a, a, enormous, you know, because they'd have to go through and, and keep picking people. So you had a, a movement for civil service reform. And proponent leading is, is a young person, Theodore Roosevelt, and he and Governor Grover Cleveland at this time, Republican and Democrat, are going to work together Roosevelt's in the legislature. He's just a 24-year-old, but he's up and coming. And uh, they're going to work on civil service reform. They pass an act, and they've got this... So the Democrats now have this great candidate in Grover Cleveland. The Republicans nominate (laughs) nominate the antithesis of this is James G. Blaine, (laughs) who's just corruption personified, and there's just documents of him sending letters to people like, please do this favor for me. Oh, and burn this letter. (laughs) (laughs) So it's what you do when you don't have a private server. (laughs) Exactly. So so unfortunately, uh, then as in now, you know, uh, one of these guys, Mulligan, an employee of a railroad company, does not burn a letter. And so it surfaces, uh, you know, a decade later from the time of the initial scandal while he's running for president. He's going to get Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland has this magic image. He's got Republican supporters. They call them the Mugwumps, and he's got uh, most of the Democrats. He doesn't really have the the, the formerly Boss Tweed-led Tammany Hall group. Boss Tweed is not alive at this point. He doesn't have that group as well, but he has most of the Democrats with him and the Republicans he's going to win. So what do they do? They go after Cleveland personally. And they find that he's been making payments to a woman, Maria Halpin, in Buffalo, presumably for a child that's his. Now Grover Cleveland is forced to address the scandals. You don't have what you had in the past where there's just these like flyers and leaflets 
you know, talking about candidates surfacing around. You have a candidate actually having to address it to the American people, to the press, and he, he, as very much was his fashion to do, admits everything, says Tulsa's supporters do not lie. He tells his supporters, so not all the Democrats listen to that election, like not to attack Blaine personally, you know, in the same way some of his surrogates do anyway, but he says he wouldn't be part of it. Grover the Good, you know, that was his issue. He said, look, I made these payments. It was for, he says it was for, uh, he wasn't sure who the child was, you know, whose child it was. It could have been one of his love partners. And um, because the woman was drinking, they had to take the child away and put him to an orphanage. He paid for everything. You have reverends getting involved on one side and the other, condemning Cleveland. Then there's a reverend, that a prominent reverend that defends him. Um, so it's it's a it's an election where the American people got this issue that didn't have anything to do with the tariff or any of the issues of the day. It had to do with the personalities of the candidate. And in the end, Cleveland prevails, but by a minuscule margin. It was a really tight election, and uh, you know there's a number of events there. Bruce, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling be- I'm feeling better about our political situation here talking to you. <laughs> I think sometimes history has that effect. That's about one of the intention of my history can beat up your politics. I mean, I think the first thing is like it's a bit of historical aspirin, if you will. Uh, <laughs> politics can be very emotional. And if you take the bird's eye view and the long-term view of American history, you know, even an election like this, although I got to admit, this one's tougher than others. This is no 2012. This yeah. is no 2008. Even even an election like this, it gives you a little bit of calm, well, which is I, important. And I, I got to say, you know, this uh, this discussion we're having about Grover Cleveland this and, 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 and Blaine, there's a whole uh, episode on this that everyone should listen to on uh on Bruce's podcast, and uh, you know, I knew about Grover Cleveland. I didn't realize what a how how highly regarded he was, and this all makes sense now because uh, it's a it's a joke that in my family there are multiple Grover Cleveland Sawyers, and we have. In fact, when my parents will tell a story, like my dad will tell a story about growing up, they'll be like, "Was that Uncle Grover that was there?" And they'll say, "No, that must that was over at GC's house." Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep 
about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have so many Grover Clevelands, and I was like, why so many Grover Clevelands? And I'm listening to your podcast, and we go, oh, because he was a good guy. He was enormously respected towards the end of his life. Theodore Roosevelt's now president, and the two people that had worked together as uh, governor and young assemblyman are now going to work together again. And and he he uh, participates with the Roosevelt uh, with a, with various commissions, and it's a Democrat and Republican working together. Grover Cleveland was respected. I will say though, there were just as many households, maybe more of the Democratic households of the time saluting him as were some cursing him because when he became president the second time in 1890 uh, in the election of 1892 then there was an economic recession and so in a lot of households Grover Cleveland would have either been uh, you know the name for everything that was honest or that oh that economy that Cleveland economy that we got you know so he was the Herbert Hoover of his time as well he got that rich opportunity to to do that as well and and by the end of his life there's there's while there is a lot of respect for him there's also people like the Bryanites in the Democratic Party and some of the Republicans who dislike him well it's it's as if it's as if blaming the the president for all of life's problems is a is something that goes way back it's almost as if that's a strange part of American history huh I usually put that to 1840. I think um, the Martin Van Buren election of 1840, where the Whig Party had figured out that we can just blame everything on the old man (laughs) van. And people got into think that mode of thinking. Because I'll tell you, in 1820, uh, so you have a big economic recession in 1819, huge. Among the people who were bankrupted by it is Thomas Jefferson, you know. And, and he writes to Adams, well, the paper bubble is, is, is lost, you know. And it is seen as the banks, you know, taking advantage. And now they ruin the whole country with all the paper money schemes and banking schemes. And it's a bad time. The person they don't blame is James Monroe. He wins in 1820 almost unanimously in the Electoral College after One an economic short. recession. One Something short. happened in those 20 years, and I see it as the Whig campaign of 1840 where they really made it clear and the and, and we also must add the increased popular voting that each every few years in in the 19th century uh in America there are more and more states allowing popular vote for selection of president by popular vote and so by the time you get to 1840 you do get a campaign where everybody's voting everyone who's white male voting Enormous increase in the franchise from 1824 or 1820 that I mentioned, and yeah, it's time to blame old man Van. Let's let's take our medicine ball and go down the street with our torch lights and and sing songs about how Van is a used up man, and that's why the economy's no good. So, but but Van kind of inherited from Jackson, right? It wasn't all Van's fault, right? Oh, I don't think the president almost I, – I think the president very rarely has fault in terms of the economy, but they, they now often get blamed for it. It did have to do with a number of, of things. It was a 
It was a expansion of, um, you know, as usually with most of these panics in American history, it was an overexpansion of credit and a uh, uh, too much speculation. And um, yeah, I don't remember all the circumstances. The 18, it was really the 1838 panic when this one started, but it extended into the 1840. It didn't get better yet. I think it's speculation on railroads was a big factor, and when they collapsed, tidal wave. Yeah, killing killing the national bank and essentially sapping up capital from uh, from being able to use for investment, that was a part of it. And you have the great irony that basically the only time in American history where we have no national debt, the economy plummets into a crisis. Well, right. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, he had a, a Jackson has a little uh, bank uh, panic. You know, when he starts pulling money out of it, not a good idea. Whether you. Whether uh, the idea of a national bank was good or not, it, it's certainly not a good idea to start pulling bags of money out of it and giving it to, your, <laughs> giving it to the pet banks. Everyone should read uh, Jackson's bank veto message. That's like should be required reading for everyone. Um, you know, Bruce, you're getting into my favorite period of history. So then let's talk about some of these presidents that people don't know so much about, like his accidency, John Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Tyler, I think his his claim to historical fame will always be that he set up the proper secession of a vice president from a president upon the president's death. So that wasn't clear in the beginning. Of course, the Constitution says that the powers of the presidency devolve upon the vice president, but doesn't say that the vice president becomes the president because of Tyler and his fight, which was a little bit of a fight. The um, You see, Tyler was an old Democrat, and the Whigs ran him on the 1840 ticket because he had been an anti-Jackson Democrat. So he was in the same party as Jackson, but he was critical of him. He was from Virginia. They needed that state. So they ran Tyler. But Henry Harrison, uh, William Henry Harrison dies, you know, after a, a less than a month in office, and uh, Tyler becomes president. Well, the cabinet says, look, we're just going to run things, okay? Is that all right? We'll just run things, and you, yeah, you have the powers of the president, but we're, we're going to basically run things as a cabinet, and we'll have a vote on everything. No. Tyler doesn't want it. And he fights for he, he He refuses to cede that level of power. He says he is the president. He deserves to that title. And because of him, you know, you have... It's not questioned anymore. And when every other vice president becomes president upon the president's death you know that's a process that's not questioned because of the tyler precedent um he had some other significant i think i think his uh, role in um the annexation of texas was um was significant right. as well i i can't we can't move on from this you know addressing tyler without talking about why he became the, the president which was because william henry harrison the oldest president to be elected until ronald reagan i think he was 68 years old decided to give his inauguration speech outside in the rain and gave the longest inauguration speech in American history in short sleeves to prove to America that he was not too old and fragile to be the president and then set another record by dying in office like 32 days later. (laughs) Yes, and, uh, you know, there's some dispute. I get get slapped on the hand a bit when I tell the story because it's such a good story. But it is true that that doctors looking at it are – are you know it's a little question a little bit the direct connection between the speech and being outside in the cold you know when he gave his inaugural speech and the and the the pneumonia and the cold because of the the time and the incubation period he was also uh 
shaking out of hands with visitors. He did feel better at a certain point and uh, during his, his, his presidency. And so it's, so it's a lot of things that, that could have caused that virus. But yes, what you did have, and you noticed there weren't too many older presidents after that. American presidency, you tend to keep it in that 40s and 50s. All right. Uh, the Constitution, uh, Constitutional Convention, they called for the executive to be someone with energy and dispatch. It didn't want necessarily an old man. That was the Senate from the Latin Senex, old men. That's what the Senate is for. The presidency is supposed to be vigorous energy. Um, there's other things that have changed about the presidency. We can certainly talk more about that. But but it was supposed to be a person that was vigorous. And it is interesting in this election, by the it way. It is, yes. Whether it was Hillary, Trump, <laughs> or even Bernie, you were going to get an older president. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz was the last remaining cause of, of the youth, uh, the youthful <laughs> presidency. So we're going to get an older president. But do they have Different. the stamina? Do they have the oh. stamina? <laughs> hey, you know, I, if you go back to 1787, again, you know, energy and dispatch right in the Constitutional Convention. You could translate that to stamina, you know, in a sense. I think I think there is that element of the 3M phone call, the red phone, and the presidency. You know, by the way, that, that isn't entirely different from those early days when the Constitution was founded. Sure, there weren't, like, nuclear weapons or terrorist threats, per se, but... You know, Philadelphia, where the capital was, is one of the worst ports to defend. Uh, uh, you know, you get a French or British fleet in there because they're upset about something, and you got trouble in the new nation. So I always think they wanted the president for that reason. Of course, you have the Shays Rebellion, the influence of that impacting the entire decision to go with the Constitution and the fact that they just didn't feel that states and governors acted quickly enough. So that does influence the presidency, and it is interesting that we're for the first time, well, not because you had Reagan, going to, in this election, going to older people. Now, a couple of things, antibiotics, heart medicine, <laughs> things have changed. Yeah. Things that killed those past presidents. I don't think Zachary Taylor would have been killed by drinking some bad raw milk or, or um, you know, mo- moldy strawberries these days. There would have been, like, anti-bacterial uh, bacterials that he could have taken. Yeah, and Garfield would not have succumbed to his bullet wound. Absolutely not. In fact, he had a very long process before he died. I mean, he was shot in the summer, and he didn't die until the fall. There were many attempts. They even had an early metal detector. They tried everything to to rescue him, but it was the lack of sanitation, most likely the infections, that, that caused his death. He didn't die immediately from the impact of the bullet. No, not at all, several months later. And that's 1881, the, the election, after or when Garfield was elected, shortly thereafter. 1881. So, Bruce, you and I went to college together. We went to the, that's right. the Richard, what is now known as the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey. Uh, that's right. When I it's tell people where I went to college, they have no idea that that college exists, <laughs> many of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a great college right out, outside of Atlantic City. Now Richard Stockton College. Sometimes it's it's referred to as Stockton University. Now, uh, great South. Uh, you know, it's that it's Southern New Jersey, which is an oft-forgotten region on the East Coast. Uh, very different from North Jersey and the New York area. That's right. So, um, so tell our listeners a little bit about Richard Stockton. Richard Stockton was a 
signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's not from the region where the college is named after. He's more from the Trenton uh, area around the uh, capital of, of New Jersey. He's a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was involved in the uh, revolutionary movement in New Jersey before that. He had a large farm and property. And Richard Stockton was betrayed by a group of uh, loyalists in New Jersey, and he was captured by the British. And he was actually forced, there is some dispute, but he was forced to recant his signing of the Declaration of Independence. There's some dispute about that, by the way, that because it's, it's possible some of his political enemies soured the story. There is an account that he merely agreed not to do anything revolutionary anymore, which was, there were, the British were offering this kind of amnesty during the revolution at the time that he took it, but he didn't recant his signing of that we should be independent. Uh, and his house, his farm, his uh, precious sets of books were all destroyed by Hessian soldiers. The Declaration Signers are a bunch that everyone should study more about. Uh, I did a, a secondary cast called They Signed. It, you know, it's up on iTunes. They Signed, the Signers of the Declaration, about all these folks. But they predate most of the people we talk about in history. We like to talk about Madison and Hamilton and Washington and all of this. I mean, some of these, 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 some of these figures we talk about were teenagers at the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the events that led up to it. The Declaration people get into the Stamp Act and some things that precede and are really important part of history. They're not all that interesting. Some of them were just people who they found who were elected by their state to represent, but they, some of them have fascinating stories. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, why don't you tell our listeners uh, how they can uh, find your show, uh, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and become a supporter of yours? Sure, it's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. It's at on iTunes. It's at Stitcher. You can get it at anywhere where where you know you can find podcasts. And podcast episodes, of course, are free. I do have a premium podcast where members that really like the program can get more information. And there's a link on my website where you can sign up for that. So basically, wherever you're getting our podcast, The Road to Now, just click, look it up. You can do it right now after this episode is over and subscribe there, and you'll just have even more good content to listen to. Yeah, Bruce, this has been a pleasure. I, can, would you please come back again? Please. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, uh, I almost, you know, as always with history, it's like the, we could just talk forever. Forever. Uh, for a long time. Seriously. You, know? you would, you're the perfect dinner guest, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I like the turkey. The turkey and the the plum pudding was excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's my grandmother's recipe, so great. All right, Bruce. Well, you take care. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Bob and Ben. Well, thank you for joining us today on The Road to Now. Our program was produced by Dr. Ben Sawyer, Bob Crawford, and Ian Scotta. Today's show was edited by Bob Crawford. The music was provided by Paul DeFiglia. Please continue to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and all forms of social media. Rate us on iTunes, and if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you at roadtonowcast at gmail.com. 
Until next time, for Dr. Ben Sawyer, this is Bob Crawford. Take care. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.